All right, and welcome back to another episode of the IFF Podcast. Mark Treglio is here with my co-pilot, Doug Stern. How are you doing today, Doug? Doing well. How about you, Mark? We're doing all right. And uh, today we have an excellent episode on tap. We are here today joined by, it's going to be a big show. There's six of us going to be sharing some airtime here today. But uh, it's very important. It's an issue that affects all firefighters. It's also a call to action to help support our brothers who are on the mend right now. Today, Doug, we're going to be talking about the incident that happened just a couple weeks ago, May 16th, in the uh, city of Los Angeles on the Boyd Street incident, where they had the explosion that injured 12 of our brothers. And uh, we have some special guests with us today. First off, I want to introduce a man who I have tremendous respect for, worked with him for several years now on a lot of different projects. He currently serves in his position as the IFF 10th District Vice President. However, before that, he was president of the uh, United Firefighters Los Angeles uh, Local 112. Like I said, I have tremendous respect for him. He fights for his members uh, like no one else, and I'm apologetic about it. And uh, that's something I really appreciate of him. That's uh, DVP Frank Lima. Yeah, hey, thanks. Thanks, Mark. It's, it's an honor to be on the IFF podcast. And this incident hit me hard because it's my home local, because it's a station I worked at in the past, busiest in the nation. Uh, I was assigned to that battalion for many years, spent most of my career in downtown. I was the past president, as you said. And and when I got the call, and I'm still active in the local, 28 years, still active on a truck captain. But as a past president and 10th district vice president now, we have, we have over 300 locals with 45,000 members I represent. Having it happen on my own home soil, you know, it just hit me pretty hard. First thing I did was uh, get in touch with my president, Freddie Escobar, who will be talking next. And immediately we got into action what, what the union does. We met at our union hall at Local 112. We immediately drove over past the scene and then went to, um, went to the hospital. And at that point, we just engage and do what we do. We were there to help the members, the families, ensure they get the best care on the immediate side, you know, food, taking care of families, uh, getting hotels for families that are coming in, commuting in to make sure that all those worries are all taken care of on the delay factor, meaning, you know, several days later, we've made several trips out to the burn center at Grossman burn center and LA County hospital. And, and we are now processing another IAFF benefit is from our foundation burn assistance checks, which we'll be delivering to these members shortly. We have over 11 uh, burn applications that were all approved by the general president and the foundation board. And we look forward to getting that. And we've provided peer support, mental health for not only our members, but um, one thing we can't forget about is, is our firefighters that were on this call, but also their loved ones and their families and their children, spouses that were seeing the news wondering uh, they couldn't get a hold of their their uh, people, their their family, and the worries that they live with. So with that said, thank you very much, and um, I'll kick it back to you, Mark. All right. Also joining us today is uh, the current president of United Firefighters of Los Angeles City, Local 112, Freddie Escobar. How are you today, Freddie? I'm doing well, and uh, thank you all for joining us, and thank you for having us. All right. I'm going to introduce uh, two special guests that are with us today. They are... LA City Firefighters. They are at Station 9, right down there in the heart of everything down there in LA. With us today 
My first guest is Ian Soriano. He is a local 112 member, also a fire apparatus operator on Truck 9 from Station 9 in downtown LA. How are you, Ian? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, brother. Also with us today is uh, Captain Scott Barkley from uh, Detailed That Day to Engine 209 and uh, led the attack on the engine on the, on, on the interior attack on that, on that fire. So uh, how are you today, Scott? Doing well. Glad to be here. So, boys, uh, here's your opportunity. Tell us all about Station 9. Well, I guess I should uh, lead off with that. Station 9 is a very special place. Just let me start off with that. People hear stories about it being the busiest in the nation. You know, it's it's day and night that thing goes, those alarms go off and you know, almost 100 times a day. And it takes a very special person to work there because you do have to deal with not only the constant, you know, call, call load, but, you know, the constant stress as well of just being up all night. You know, we protect mainly and serve mainly the uh, homeless population that reside on Skid Row. We also take care of like the old historic district in downtown LA. So we have a lot of different challenges in our, you know, first in, as we say. But uh, because of how busy we are, we do have that like special camaraderie that, you know, is built through, you know, really actually tough times and just coming to work and getting worn down. So that, that knit, that brotherhood and sisterhood that is bonded through those things, we definitely have it there. And I've never actually, you know, I've, I've never been assigned there up until four years ago. I'm going almost on five here. And you've always heard stories about it, about, you know, being assigned there. And everyone on the outside goes, hey, why are you guys are crazy for staying there for so long? But man, that thing has a way of uh, grabbing a hold of you and sucking you in and uh, making you stay. And it's, it's mainly, you know, of course, we're there to do a job. Of course, we want to do it well and serve the public. But we also, you know, we're there for each other and to look after each other. So, Ian, let me, let me ask you, you said you were there for five years. You've been at Station 9. Is that unusual to be there that long in, you know, a busy station like that for an L.A. firefighter? Yeah, I would, it, it, again, usually. We've had a lot, you know, it's like a rotating door sometimes. And then sometimes you get lucky and you get some firemen that are gung-ho and you guys click and they stay there, you know, mainly because of the people that we surround ourselves with there. But, uh, you know, we do see a lot of people come in and out of all various ranks where they stay for a year or what we call, you know, their cup of coffee. And then, you know, they pack their bags and move on. And that's no... uh you know, that's nothing against them. It's just they have different situations going on. But yeah, the people that stay, they, they stay for usually, you know, for the brotherhood and the sisterhood and the camaraderie. It seems that's a lot, that's a lot of the fire service, right? It's not about necessarily what, what you're doing. It's about who's, who you're doing it with. Um, so it's, it's really neat to hear that you guys have that bond. Scott, let me ask you a little, just, I know, I know you're a captain at engine nine, right? Um, we say the busiest in the nation. How many apparatus do you guys have there? What, how many runs are you guys pulling a year? That kind of thing. Can you give us a little bit of the, the I guess, statistics behind Engine 9 or Station 9, rather? So let me give you a, a slight correction. I have worked in and around Fire Station 9 for most of my career. I spent almost 11 years in downtown as a paramedic. But I was assigned first at Fire Station 10 and then at Fire Station 3, which is uh, one of our USAR companies. Um, I would work a ton of overtime at nines and uh, always had a great time going there to work. Then when I promoted, I actually promoted over to Fire Station 4, which is just north of Fire Station 9. 
And again, had no problems going to work in there. There's there's certain stations in the city where guys are like, oh, I'll work anywhere. Oh, but there. And sometimes nines gets that rep because of the call volume. It's nothing for them to run, you know, 80, 90, even over 100 calls in a shift between all the different apparatus. Uh, they have two fully staffed engines, which for our department is, it's the only station that has it. They have a fully staffed truck. Uh, they have two paramedic ambulances. They have a, a, a EMT ambulance, and then they have a variably staffed EMT ambulance. So they have 19 people assigned per shift. And then with the variable staff, they have two guys that come in and man that, but only at night. So it's a, it's a very busy assignment, a very busy location. When I promoted, I actually seriously considered going to nines, but uh, I happen to live outside of the state of California and so I have to bunch a bunch of days together. And to do that at nines, the sleep deprivation would have been uh, detrimental to my health. So uh, I still go there. Uh, one of the couple of guys there that I do trades with, and I, I love going there exactly because of what Ian said, the guys, the guys that are there, they want to work. They want to do a good job. You don't have a bunch of personnel issues. And if a guy doesn't want to be there, come a year and a day, he's going to transfer out because the call volume will drive them out. So you, the guys who are there, 99% of them are there with a great attitude and they want to work. So let's get, let's take us to May 16th, the day of the fire. Uh, I bet it started like any other day at the fire station. Take us through, take us through the day uh, up until, you know, what you guys experienced and then the call came in. All right. So I forget what time it was early in the morning. We had a little small abandoned bungalow fire and uh, it was kind of good to get out, stretch the legs with the guys, you know, kind of go over some SOGs and stuff. Because I work all over the city with my scheduling, I don't do anything trick. I try to just, hey, commu you know, communicate clearly. If you see something, say something. I, I don't like have any kind of trick operations um, because it's I'm always working with different guys. So just stick to the books, stick to the the, the manuals we have and. And we'll do just fine. You know, those uh, those policies are policies that have been set because of blood, sweat and tears over the years and they work. So uh, I don't feel like I need to rewrite that. Uh, we went on that little nothing fire, uh, got cleaned up real quick. But, uh, you know, started out the day nice with a little little fire and, and some camaraderie and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, as the day progressed, ran some calls. It was, you know, typical day getting coffee, having a good time, laughing, scratching, joking out. And then uh, right after dinner, we were playing a game for dishes um, and uh, playing dice, if I remember right. And right when I got put in the suds, uh, the bells went off uh, for the structure fire. So we all go bolting out. And because of the way nines is, they have a, a set order they respond in. The truck goes first, then engine, two, uh, engine nine, then engine 209, if they're all coming from quarters. So we were the third resource in the response, and it was right around the corner from the station, not very far. Uh, we didn't see a very big loom up on approach. There was some kind of lazy smoke in the intersection, but it didn't look like a, a very big fire. The truck was given the roof. Engine 9 was given fire attack, and Engine 209, which is what we were on, or I was on, was given backup fire attack. So we jumped off, grabbed our gear, started heading over, but this was Saturday about what was it, 6.30 in the evening. So most of those shops are already closed. And then because of the COVID, they probably weren't even open that day. 
Um, so we had a little bit of a forcible entry issue that delayed us from going in. Let me ask you real quick, Scott. I, I, don't, uh-huh. I don't mean to interrupt. I think this is a good place oh, to go ask this question. What kind of occupancy are we talking about here? I know it was a bit of an older warehouse, but what's the rest of the neighborhood yeah. look like? Is it kind of run down or are there, you know, you said shops, which kind of keyed me. Is there commercial buildings there as well? Yeah, that whole street is all like smoke shops, bong shops. It's all old commercials. Um, some of it's unreinforced masonry. It's, it, you know, older, uh, yeah, commercial and uh, light industrial uh, in the area. And then there's a few, we call them SROs, single room occupancy hotels, kind of, they'll either be on the corners or, you know, just scattered around in there every there uh, now and then. So, so you, you, you were working up to where you guys are starting to make entry. Sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, so as we come up to the, the first engine and start, you know, helping guys establish their hose line and stuff, uh, there were two guys working saws to cut the rolling steel door. And they dropped the first one. And we look, and it's floor-to-ceiling storage on both sides of the entry with about a probably 18-inch to 2-foot wide path down the middle but then there were still boxes like stacked against that and so we're like dude that's that's horrible access we're like cut the next one because we had smoke coming out of both of the rolling steel doors uh it looked like it was a you know basically a two unit occupancy kind of deal or it had two two fronts so they cut that one and there were shelves completely blocking any kind of entry from that one so you know when faced with poor access or no access uh, unfortunately poor access wins. So the captain on engine nine, again, we were assigned backup. He was uh, radioing out what all was happening. And I just told Larry, uh, that captain, I said, uh, Hey, I'm going to take the guys and go in. And I'd been told that I had rescue 209 with me. So it was, uh, me, my nozzleman, my hydrant member, um, and then two paramedics. And then there were some other guys that filtered in towards the back. As we went in, obviously the nozzleman's on the nozzle. One of the paramedics was uh, in front or right behind him, and then me, and then my hydrant member behind me, and uh, another paramedic behind him. As we started going in, we encountered this ladder in the middle of the aisle that was, uh, it's basically like, like you'd see them at like uh, plumbing stores or whatever. It's, it's, They'll roll up and down the aisles. It's not attached to the wall. It's a freestanding ladder, but it allows them to get stuff on higher shelves. That blocked a large part of the access. And so my nozzleman goes around it. The next guy, I passed it back and I told the guys behind me, you know, hey, get this thing out of here because I didn't want any obstructions in the way of our exit. But uh, unfortunately, somewhere along the line, that message um, didn't get passed because we unfortunately encountered that ladder again later. So as the, as, as the engine company's making their way in to fight fire, Ian, what's going through your mind? Where, where are you at? You know, when we all pull on scene, usually the truck is the first one that spots to the occupancy. And like uh, Cap was saying, it was a one-story commercial. It had two roll-up doors. It ended up being about you know, less than 40 feet wide, I would say, to about 150 feet in length. And when we pulled up, it was just, I would classify it as like a wisp of smoke coming out of the top of the, uh, the left-handed roll-up door. And it was a narrow street, very narrow street. And so 
you know, by the time we started, I started throwing the aerial, you know, I'm keeping a, an eye on the uh, conditions. And as I started going, climbing that aerial, you know, and they opened up the door, it started to be a little bit more of a moderate, you know, pressure smoke, brown in color. However, at, there was no point in time where I was like, this thing, you know, was going like a bomb. It was more of a thought process. And I don't know if Scott feels the same way. We never really talked about it yet, but it was something that I felt confident when we first got there that, hey, we're going to put a hole in this thing. They're going to throw some water on it and we're going to do some overhaul versus, hey, this thing's going like a bomb. Let's see what we could do. And we're probably going to have to go defensive. So it was very deceptive, right? When we first pulled on scene and there's footage of that to what ended up transpiring. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that one of the things I meant to talk about is before we made entry, it was just kind of lazy. Like there was moderate smoke once we got it opened up, but it was cold. When we went inside, it you had like two to three foot, maybe four foot visibility. So it wasn't great visibility, but but there was no heat. There was really no pressure to it. It was just kind of, it almost seemed like there's a lot of places down there where they'll have um, textile storage and it kind of gets in there and just starts punking around and and putting out a lot of smoke, but not a lot of fire. And it kind of started seeming like maybe it was like one of those, like a textile type, you know, fire at, you know, wherever the fire was. We knew it was a smoke shop, but that, that was just kind of like one of the thoughts that went through my head was it kind of just, it seemed like more of a smoldering fire than a, than a, a rager. So Scott, you're, we'll go back to Scott. You're pushing down the hallway. What, at what point did you start recognizing things changing? So as we're going down, we have little uh, personal thermal imaging cameras and they're awesome. They give a, a temperature readout and because of like the conditions not being um, stereotypical, I was kind of just trying to like get my bearings. So I'm taking readings of the ceiling and I'm getting readings of like 115, nothing alarming. But as you pan around, it's also, you're not really seeing a whole lot because everything's pretty much the same temperature. I could see our guys, but I couldn't see like the lay of the occupancy because everything's just kind of like a nice, even warm temperature. We made it about 40 feet in. And as we're going in, um, and this is again, very early on in the incident, we start hearing this really loud noise. Some guys have described it as like a freight train. Other guys have described it as like a jet engine. It didn't sound to me like a relief valve. It didn't sound to me like any, it didn't sound like a big raging fire in the background or anything. I, I couldn't place it, but it started getting louder and it started getting closer. Um, as I've gone through some of the footage and listened to some of the radio traffic and stuff, the captain on the truck had made a few radio transmissions. And Mike, my lapel mic normally sits probably six inches from my ear, if that. Um, you know, I have it on a little cord key, a little mic keeper. And I had my radio turned all the way up. And I could hear that he was saying something, but he was A, speaking fast. And I just couldn't, because of the noise, I couldn't make out what he was saying. And so he had called everybody off the roof and I hadn't realized it yet. And about two seconds later, I was like, with the way the noise was growing in, in volume and seeming to get closer, I was like, you know what? Something's off. Everybody out. And so I ordered us all out. But because of the narrowness of the corridor, normally you call an evac and the captain's the last one out. On this one, we didn't have the space for that. 
So we just all turned 180 degrees and started heading out. And so now I have two guys behind me and a string of guys in front of me. And we took about two steps. And next thing you know, the smoke turned pitch black and then came heat. And so I dropped to the ground instinctively. Um, and typically for me, when, when the visibility disappears, I'll close my eyes because it just helps me focus on the tactile. And so as we're making our way out and it's getting hot, uh, next thing I know, I bumped into somebody and I'm just yelling out, everybody out. And I get snagged on that ladder. I wind up, I was wearing uh, a buddy of mine's ax. I borrowed it for the day. And uh, the scabbard gets caught on one of the posts of that ladder. And I'm a bigger guy. I'm 6'4", about 285. And uh, so I just went into full, like, big dumb animal mode and tried to push it so that I could get out because it was freaking hot and this thing wasn't moving. And so I opened my eyes and that's when I realized um, there's flames literally swirling around my face mask, my helmet. I see my gloves. They're on fire. My coat is on fire. Everything around me is on fire. And so the first thought that goes through my head is I just walked my guys into a flashover. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that there was a lot more going on in there and that um, the reason the conditions changed was uh, not so much because I had missed something. So, Ian, I don't know if you want to jump in. This is, you know, just about when Cap was telling you guys off the roof. Let me ask a question real quick, Scott. You, you, yeah. you left us stuck on the ladder. How did you finally get yourself off of that ladder and out of the building? It took a couple seconds, um, honestly. And during that time, I can hear the two guys that were behind me screaming. Uh, I thought I was listening to two of my crew die, which was just eating me up inside. And at one point, I'm thinking, you know, all the training we go through, everybody says, if you're more than six feet from the door, when a flashover occurs, you're dead, right? That's kind of the standard uh, theory. And I'm doing the math in my head. Originally, I thought we were about 30 feet in. ATF measured the location of the nozzle. They said we made it 40 feet in. So I'm doing the math in my head and I'm figuring if we were about 30 feet in, I've probably made it about 10 feet back. I'm 20 feet in. I'm three times that distance. There's no way I make it out of here. And so I'm just doing that mental math in my head while I'm pushing and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had some scary situations in my life, but never to the point of where I was certain I would die. And uh, on this one, I just, I didn't see a way out. I said a small prayer, you know, God take care of my wife. And um, then all of a sudden, like a light went on and I backed up just a little and that got the scabbard off the post and the way this thing is it's kind of uh like a, it's a triangle and i was going in the back and trying to go out the side um, and what i wound up doing is coming back out and just going through both sides and the ladder was canted to the side um but going in the back narrowed it down and with uh, my size i wasn't gonna fit with the axon so uh made it through the ladder and honestly I don't remember anything from that point um, until I was face down on Boyd Street, laying in the gutter with water running across 
the side of my face with my, you know, my flash hood up and all that. And I just remember going, that feels so much better. But it turned out, I found out later um, that one of my previous engineers, um, he said, everything went to crap. The fireball comes flying out. Uh, I was told it lasted 36 seconds. He said, as it started to die down, they were trying to establish a line. He hands this inch and three quarter hand line to a young guy and tells him spray it in there to cool it off. Um, and he got low and you can see on the drone footage, that's when the steam starts coming out. He said he got low and he saw me, I was down, um, not moving four feet from the door. Uh, and so him and his turnouts and or in his turnout pants and brush jacket took a chance and grabbed me and pulled me out. But like I said, I'm a big guy. And he told me cap, I needed a break. And so he kind of dropped me in the gutter for a second and then got some help and pulled me the rest of the way. So I owe him it, it, at that point. It's forgivable. Right. I told him, I don't blame you for taking a break. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I told him, I don't, I don't blame you. I never expected one guy to pull me out. So Ian is, is there going through all this inside what's going on on the roof? Just to back it up a little bit. I mean, as I, you know, crest over that parapet, uh, my guys are waiting. They established a safe area for us to assess the roof. Uh, I end up doing what's called an inspection call where, you know, you gain knowledge of basically what this roof is made out of. And so by doing that, I got, you know, some smoke conditions out of it. It was about the same, you know, moderate brown smoke that was coming out of that rolling steel door. And then from there with, you know, the knowledge of, you know, how this thing was built and the conditions that were coming out of it, I pretty much, you know, decided, Hey, we're going to start heading down the middle of this thing. You know, the experience of my crew at that time, I had a overtime captain two, a well-respected captain two. That's actually nine's alumni. He used to hold my, he's previously held my rank before for a number of years. Um, the rest of the guys on my truck, you know, uh, two of them have five years. The other one has four. So again, relatively young, but you know, they got some seasoning on their belt just from incidents we've been on and through our training. So we start heading down the middle of this uh, roof and smoke conditions are actually pretty good. Like it is highly visible up there. I would say, you know, 99% of the old timers out there probably wouldn't have put on a breather. It was that tenable. There's a, a heater vent pipe that's pretty much at the 50 yard line. And that was giving us some good smoke conditions. It was, it was puffing like pretty much, you know, moderate brown smoke. Um, so we get to that point. I say, Hey, we're going to go to the 75 yard line and put a hole in this thing. Right. So we get there. I start cutting my hole. They end up, uh, you know, it's normal practice for the LAFD, you know, to be suited up on a roof and, you know, there's different thoughts and, you know, uh, on, you know, different times to do that. Um, and when I was cutting my hole, you know, my guys chose to use that time to put on their face piece and get on air. Right. So when I back up and I see all them going to work to pop the hole, you know, I use that time now to suit up myself, right? We got moderate smoke. Mo well, I shouldn't say that. Let me repeat that. We got heavy black smoke out of this thing initially, right? They got done. 
I went to extend this hole and I remember as I was cutting, I was looking straight down into the hole I previously cut and just seeing, you know, turbulent black smoke, but it had like a look of like you looking, you know, at, at hot concrete or like the back of a jet engine, like that distortion, but it wasn't hot at that time. It didn't have like anything that would drive you away. I extend that hole. We get the same conditions. Uh, at this time, the, you know, talking with the captain two at the time after the incident, he automatically right then and there started uh, talking to the engine company of, Hey, we got heavy fire. The thing actually hadn't lit off yet, but you know, he's that far ahead of the game and his experience is telling him, you know, Hey, this thing is going to light off any second now. And the engine companies and companies on scene need to know about this. Right. So he's trying to get the ball rolling and the thought process of that interior company going like, Hey, this thing's about to really light off here. So I don't know if, if Scott, we never really talked about it yet about you hearing that, but he reported that, uh, my guys worked on that hole. I went to extend it a third time and now I'm feeling heat on the back of my knuckles, no fire yet. As soon as I back up from there and those guys go to pop that hole, I throw on my gloves, right? And it's taking me a long time. Uh, Ian, real fast. Yeah. That, that radio communication came out when we were cutting the second door open. Gotcha. So again, it was, it was, we heard him talking, but with, we had two saws running and freaking cutting open that rolling steel. So it wasn't like clear communication because of all the ambient noise around us. And I've, I've been able to piece that through with uh, between watching video and the, and the freaking uh, the listening to the, the radio logs. So yeah, I heard that later. I'm like, Oh dude, that's what he was saying when we were cutting that rolling steel right. and we weren't right. even in yet. So that smoke became very turbulent. Right. And then, you could tell it was going to light off. We've all seen conditions like that before. So we kind of back off and sure enough, it starts lighting off. Um, pretty much what we're there to do, right? That's what we want to see is fire out of the roof. So it gives uh, the interior companies better conditions inside, right? Lifting the smoke layer. We back up. I'm still fiddling with my glove, my right hand glove. It's half in, half out. I've been trying at this thing for like 30 seconds now. And I passed the saw off to one of the younger guys told him to establish another ventilation hole so he goes to town uh, i finally finish you know I, I pick up the uh the rubbish hook which we use for pulling the boards once the uh, cutter is done cutting and we start pulling this we're getting heavy black smoke out of it and pretty much as soon as we finish this right and just to paint context here about 75 yard line we put our first hole we dropped back to about the like the 50, 40 yard line to establish this other uh, ventilation hole. We got done pulling this hole and almost that's when, like almost at that second, when we were done with that thing, we started hearing almost sound like little Chinese firecrackers. Or if you've been on a garage fire, you know, you hear like ammunition or something or, you know, fireworks, small end fireworks going off. And that's usually not something to start hightailing from, so to speak, but you take, you definitely slow your roll and you step back for a second or back up for a second and go, Hey, what's going on here? But you know, I tell the guys back up and almost immediately that thing ramps up from just little pop, 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 pop to, it sounded like machine gun fire and just started getting, 
out of control loud, like mortars were dropping, boom, boom. And in that instant, you know, basically saying, hey, we're, we need to go right now. We turned around to leave and, you know, then that whole, it ramps up even more. I mean, we're hightailing to our aerial now. I never said anything to the captain too, you know, cause he was a little bit further back, but, you know, we locked eyes and had that, you know, oh crap moment or, you know, just that look of what's going on here. We need to go. So all the guys ended up jumping up on the aerial or trying to get up onto it from both sides of the aerial. I saw at that time the captain two ran towards the ground ladder that the uh, firefighters threw previously. And at this time, that's like what Captain Barkley was saying, that whole jet engine sound was just, it sounded like a 747 was flying five feet above our head. The, the roof was shaking. It sounded like mortars were chasing us, like out of a, you know, some war movie where it's just right at your feet going boom, 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 like the roof's collapsing. And everyone's piling onto this radio. I'm thinking Cap's going down to 35, remembering once we get down there to account for him. You know, little do I know, he probably went to that 35, looked down and just saw fire already. This time, you know, I'm making my way onto the aerial. Um, I'm standing on the parapet. I feel Cap behind me. You know, I feel his panic. And he's pushing and shoving, trying to get, it, you know, make room for him. We get on the aerial and there's already fire, you know, licking up around us from not only the roof but underneath our feet as well because the only spot for that aerial ladder was directly over the rolling steel doors and you know my memory isn't like fluid right on that aerial and it's kind of, i think it kind of relates to barclay's experience you know halfway through exiting is my mind has blocked out a lot of that stuff however the human mind works there but the last thing I vividly remember was looking down, seeing fire at my feet. I start hoofing it and it just kept growing underneath my feet. It kept pushing out. I thought in my own head, like what is happening here? I thought flammable liquid was leaking from the building and just catching on fire. And it was heading right towards my aerial ladder. And it was just in disbelief, like what is going on here? It was unfathomable. And next thing you, next thing I know, you know, uh, the person in front of me, you know, because there's fire licking up everywhere, we, we're losing sight of where we're stepping. He puts his whole, uh, he puts his foot through one of the rungs. So that's like that stutter you see kind of uh, when we first get off and probably get like 10 feet off the aerial, off the roof. And, you know, my instinct was pretty much do go, go, go. And I kind of lifted and pushed him at the same time. And we go tumbling down the ladder, uh, belly first. I end up somehow sliding or leapfrogging. I'm not sure exactly how it happened over him. And at that point, you know, I'm belly down. We're still engulfed by fire. Somehow I'm stuck. It felt like a gorilla was on top of me, but people who found me and then dragged me off said there was no one on top of me. My ax was actually wedged in the aerial, um, on the side of the aerial. And so was, you know, the guy that was previ previously in front of me and now behind me, he had the same issue. Our axes ended up getting stuck in the aerial and we could not move. And it was a, a helpless, helpless feeling. 
kind of along the lines of, you know, Barkley's stop process. It was a, it was a scary moment. It was half like, you know, fear, half, you know, just realization that, dude, I'm going to die right here. And cause it's one thing, you know, like, like when Cap got stuck, it's a, it's a helpless feeling. Like you're surrounded by fire, you're in this fireball and you can't move and you don't know if this thing's going to stop. And then next thing I know, I'm being dragged. Uh, the guy who came back, um, basically running into the fireball as the fireball happened to start retracting back, uh, grab a hold of me and started just yanking me. Somehow he yanked my axe right off my scabbard just by pulling and then dragged me off the, the ladder, got onto the pedestal, still laying, you know, he's still dragging me and he basically did the, the old WWE top rope toss off of the truck and just got me, <laughs> threw me to the curb. And, uh, yeah, after that, it was, it was just the whole shell shock thing. I'm alive. I could feel that I was burned, but I was alive, but it was just, everything was in slow motion. I was stunned. Someone tried to take my stuff off of me. I'm going, Hey, I'm, you know, leave me alone. I wasn't in the most kindest of words, but you know, I'm telling them I'm seeing firemen right in front of me get dragged out unconscious. I'm like, go, you know, go help them. I'm fine. And my truck's on. I remember looking at my aerial, my aerial's on fire, my truck's on fire. It was just a crazy scene. Now, when you guys are up, up on the roof and, and you said you locked eyes with the captain, um, are, are, are you communicating? Are you guys yelling back and forth or does everybody get that same feeling and realize it's time to, to hightail it out of there. Everyone's running towards the aerial and on the way back, I'm kind of just looking at them like, you know, that, oh crap back there. Oh, sh you know, oh shit. Um, this is bad kind of look, you know what I mean? This is very bad. And I can't speak for anyone else because I haven't dived that deep with them on just whole thought process or what they did. You know, Barkley you know, kind of spoke about people, you know, yelling from my own recollection here, for whatever reason, man, I was, I was, it was all in my head. And I don't think I yet, yet put out a scream or, you know, oh, you know, cursing or anything like that or yelling. I was, it was just all going on in my head. I was silent as a church mouse, which is, you know, an eerie thing to think about, but yeah. So, so we're at a point now where, you know, Scott's in the gutter. You've been thrown off the fire truck. The fire trucks are on fire. All hell's breaking loose. And this is where, you know, we had 12, 12 firefighters hurt. And some, some minor, some, some extensive. How did, how did you guys fare on that? For me, like I said, I woke up face down in the gutter and just kind of realizing that I didn't know how I was still alive. Um, and all of a sudden somebody grabs me from behind. I find out later it was two guys and they start pulling me and I started yelling at them, get off me, get off me. There's two more guys behind me because the last thing I remembered was, you know, I'm stuck on the ladder and there's two guys behind me that are screaming in pain. And they're like, no, everybody's out. And I'm like, no, dude, there were two guys behind me and we're like going back and forth. And they pulled me about halfway across the street and stopped. And then that, I looked up at that point and I saw that the cab of the truck, it's a brand new aerial rig and the cab of the truck was on fire and nobody seemed to care. 
And that was kind of like a moment for me where I'm like, there's something bigger going on here than, than just a flashover. Like this is something bigger happened than what I realized, you know, cause we were just isolated in that little smoky low visibility area until we were all on fire. And, uh, they stripped off all my gear or, you know, my coat, my, my, uh, my breather, my coat, my helmet, my gloves. And then all of a sudden they said, I stood up. I walked over to where we kind of had guys staging on the far side. I knew I was burned pretty good because my back uh, was aching and I could see my hands and they were just covered in huge blisters. So I was still trying to account for all my guys, but apparently in that interim, somehow six of the guys had gotten out, stripped down their gear hopped in an ambulance and drove themselves to the hospital. So we had an accountability issue because six of the guys, uh, one of them who had burns on his hand was the one driving and just like, Hey, we're, we're just going, this is, we're, we're hurt. That's, you know, um, and they let people know, but we were trying to figure out exactly who was there. So I didn't want to leave until I knew that all my guys were accounted for. And um, finally, when enough people, contacted me and said yeah no we got them all i decided to go to the ambulance staging area and then uh to the hospital so i was delayed i don't know four or five minutes whatever it was and then uh, yeah then i wound up uh, in the trauma center getting stripped and flipped how about you ian and my injuries and you know my own head are it's a cat scratch compared to these guys man i tipped my hat i was somehow you know, lucky enough to not get such extensive burns. I, I did have to have two surgeries, but you know, the back of my uh, my hand um, received deep second. They still say possible third. Um, my right arm a little bit. They said second. Uh, my back right leg, right, because when that thing blew out, it was mainly blowing out to the right side of us as we were heading down that area. So as far as the guys on the aerial, we took a beating mainly, you know, not only all over, but mainly on the right side of us because when we're laying on our bellies or standing up or whatever, that's the side that took the most heat. So the right side of my back leg had a third degree burn and then a deep second on my, my left side uh, leg there on the back. But the guy that was initially in front of me who ended up behind me because I leapfrogged over him. Uh, he got, he got, he took it pretty bad on, on the arm and the hand and, you know, his legs and stuff, but yeah, to kind of, you know, that was a surreal moment there. Just cap was talking about, you know, getting us to the hospital, you know, I'm, we're all staggering around shell shocked, just zombies. And we get riled up or corralled, I should say. And we head over to one of the ambulances. And it's myself, the captain too, who was up there with me, and my top member who was up there with me, along with one of the young uh, firemen that was interior that is still receiving treatment at the hospital. Somehow he ends up walking with all of us, third degree burns, 30% of his body. And we hop in the back of the rescue, which is our ambulance, and there's four of us sitting there. And I just remember looking at everyone who's, you know, just peeling all over, skin falling off. 
that young fireman with the third degree burns on 30% of his body, he's, he's going, I don't feel good. I feel like I'm going to faint. So now I'm, you know, trying to talk to him to keep him awake and keep him upright. And then I'm, as we're taking off, I'm assisting him into the gurney. Cause it was, it was chaos. We, you know, that hospital is less than five minutes away. We have a lot of critical patients here. And I think the, the, the call was made by our own members, you know, the, the engineers um, that were the pumpers or the uh, pump operators, they threw us in there and they just wanted to get us to the hospital. And it was unbeknownst to me at the time, but the two guys that were previously inside that were also burned jumped in to drive and be the passenger in the front. And we just hightailed it to the uh, ER. And from then on, you know, just everyone is getting admitted. I think the worst part about that being there is, you know, you, we got there and it's like, where's everyone else? What's the status of everyone else? Right. Cause they just swooped us up, put us in there. That was a long, that was a long 10, 15 minutes waiting, you know, trying to hear about the status of everyone. And you all went to the same ER? Yes. Um, that ER, um, it, it, it being, it's the closest to Skid Row that will accept anybody from Skid Row. So, but it's also a teaching hospital. It's uh, USC County Medical Center, um, and they have a phenomenal trauma center. They have a pretty decent sized ER. They have burn center. They have everything there. So it's kind of one-stop shopping. And um, I think, I don't know who called it in, um, but I think whoever called it in told them we had a massive explosion, blah, blah, blah. They heard it was nines and they're like, bring them all here. So, um, yeah, and there's a bond between... Yeah, go for it. Sorry. Yeah. And, and, you know, luck was on our side, you know, at this moment in time, because the staff in that ER was making a a shift change. So they had double the amount of people to actually provide, you know, immediate service to anyone that rolled through those doors. You know, we had a lot of uh, lucky breaks that day. Um, That was definitely one of them. Well, and a lot of them that were, going off duty. Like I knew a lot of the nurses, a lot of the doctors from being a paramedic in downtown, a lot of them hung over, you know, like well into the night to help out because they knew all these guys, they have personal relationships with all these guys. And, um, so that helped, you know, it helped with, uh, them not getting overwhelmed and with, uh, you know, our treatment. So, so we're going to, we're going to come back to, uh, the injuries and the, and the road ahead for you guys. I want to take this opportunity now to bring in Frank and Freddie to, to talk about, you know, their response to the incident, what they were going through and, and what steps they're taking to help. You know, what was through my mind with Freddie is we talked, we talked right off the bat as pretty much the incident was still going down or whatever. We said, Hey, let's meet up at the union hall and um and get going and like i said in my intro it 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 always hits you hard but it's like wow i've worked at the station you know i've worked with a lot of these members that are on the job at this fire you know you you get you get going on the road and, and your mind starts wondering and one thing i could say is that probably on my way down to the union hall I talked to our CPF president. I was getting texts from, you know, the Massachusetts firefighters, the Florida people in Florida. I mean, all over. This was national news 
ASAP. And um, number one goal is to take care of our members and their families. That's like the vocation of the IAFF and what we do. And when we got to the hospital, we just sized things up, who's hurting, how many people. And from driving in on the freeway as reports that we probably have two people in very grave condition is what I was continually told. And that could translate into a line of duty death. And then you look at the video after. And in retrospect, now sitting here, we're lucky we didn't have to plan four to six funerals. We have brothers that are hurt, but the sisters and brothers of Fire Station 9 just do such a great job. And I really want to thank Ian and Scott for coming out on this. But immediately through my head, it was I got our burn coordinator going, our IAFF 10th District burn coordinator, Mike Fye, who, who flew down immediately from Sacramento to help start processing benefits for these members. I want to, you know, we had Chief Terrazas. Our uh, LAFD fire chief was there immediately. The mayor came to the hospital. And it was just humbling of all the people, other locals. Uh, the, you know, we have, a, uh, we have a little mantra in the 10th district. It's Team 10th. And Team 10th was strong as ever. I mean, from, from Oakland to Honolulu, Albuquerque, Phoenix, we're getting texts and anything you need. And it just really shows the uh, depth that we're at. In fact, uh, Brother Barkley lives out in Arizona. He's commutes. And we've already had our district field service representative Gilman out there. And those Arizona sister and brothers are ready to take care of him and his family in a moment's notice. So I'll give it up to Freddie. All right, guys. Well, thanks. As I said earlier today, and, and to reiterate with Frankie, I'd love to hear Ian's voice and Scott's voice and their stories and everything. Because, you know, I think if anyone has seen that incident, we could, uh, it could, the situation could have been a lot worse, right? Um, as we move forward, for us oh, wow. in the city of Los Angeles, there has been few things, whatever the members and their families need, period. Really, um, these are uncharted territories. There's a huge, not only physical recovery for a lot of our members, right? Um, anywhere from an injured, an injured firefighter to significant burns. And as we move forward, these guys, there's going to be a behavioral component attached to it. And, um, and no one, um, no one, but them are going to know what they're going to need. And all I could tell them as their representative, we're here for them and their families as we move forward. Hey, Mark, can I just finish with one more thing? Um, on that is taking my, union hat off and put my uh, truck captain hat on helmet on is to remind everybody out there that you know when you roll in on scene and you maybe don't lay a line because there's nothing showing to light smoke showing and I did the job that Ian uh, does years ago and I just want to commend all of nines and really everybody on that fire for that matter, because it looks like you did everything textbook and what we do. And this is obviously an untraditional fire with butane becoming a thing uh, going forward with uh, 
pot shops and THC operations. But um, just remember, because a big part of what we do in the union isn't just advocating for for pay, obviously good pay, good contract, retirement with security, all those things. But it's safe working conditions. And it's to, it's to put us on the pinnacle and cutting edge with our personal protective equipment, which we battled for in Los Angeles years ago. We have two sets of turnouts now. And make sure that you're in the part of those request for proposal RFP processes. Make sure the union's part of that safety committee. Make sure you have a say so the city doesn't under budget and buy the cheapest um, product there is. But from light smoke showing to within, I believe it's eight minutes, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, from light smoke showing when the maxis were set to nothing showing to eight minutes later, they're fully engulfed. That's a very fast amount of time. So keep your guard up. And I appreciate Ian and Scott for, for all you do and all of Fire Station 9 at Wino 90. Just, just want to add a little bit more what Frankie said. Um, also, Ian and Scott are being crazy humble, right? Uh, the reason guys have been around 9C is because of the leadership of Ian Soriano and the front office. That's just the reality. You talk about Fire Station 9, it's less than one square mile. And Ian could tell you exactly what it is, but I know it's less than one square miles and they run anywhere from 80 to 100 calls there a day. So to keep a crew there for five years, man, it's a testament to their leadership and which leads into the training. In the city of Los Angeles, you know, there's reputations, hey, you guys train too much. Train, train as your life depends on it. I don't think there's any fire, fireman out there or firefighter, excuse me, that's going to question how we train in the city of Los Angeles. They're not going to question, hey, why are the rookies donning their breathing apparatus five to ten times a day? Why are the rookies wearing their safety gear when they're not even going on a run? Uh, you look at that incident, the city of Los Angeles has a standard all of the fire service has a standard. We must maintain that standard as we move forward. A testament to Fire Station 9, to the city of Los Angeles, to our not only our leaders in the uh, at uh, the LAFD, but also the leadership in the union to advocate for all the safety gear because that's what saved the guys. Their lives is the safety gear and the training that was supported by uh, leaders like Ian Soriano and uh, Scott that push that standard to maintain that minimum standard in the city. And I challenge all the brothers and sisters to have that view because uh, a few years ago in our training, we started uh, your train as your life depends on it because it does. This is just a, an example of what that training pays off. That's it. Thank you guys very much. So, May 16th happened. We had, we had 12 firefighters hurt and it's been almost three weeks since that incident. And in that time, I think we have COVID, we've had murder hornets, we've had riots, uh, civil unrest. I mean, there's a whole lot going on, but this has not, this run is not over for, for the members of 112 and, and, uh, 
the nines that have been through this. Uh, Scott and Ian, take us through some of the things that you'll be facing down the road as part of your recovery. Phew, man, that's a that's a big question, right? I don't know. That's that's uncharted territory, man. I've only heard about people going through this. I've only you know watched certain people go through this, but once you're in that position, it's a man. It just touches home on all those things you you hear about with you know you, you experience such a traumatic event you know not only receiving injuries from it on the outside but you know it's a you're going to war with with your mind as well and um i know we're all dealing with it um in different ways it's uncharted territory um it's fresh in my head still you know but with that i think you know the main thing we have going for us right is it wasn't just a one person that got burned or, you know, um, had that traumatic experience. There's, there's 19 plus, plus our extended family that day. Right. So we all have people to lean on the resources that, you know, the union provides, we have mental health doctors, uh, that, you know, our department in the city provides. So, you know, each of us are going to select which way we want to, you know, chart those waters and, we're going to use all the uh, resources we can there. But as far as what I see in the future, and I can't even tell you what's going to happen five minutes from now, you know, it just, sometimes it just hits you and, you know, you just start, start staring off into the distance and um, it's a process, but Hey man, we got, got to work with it. I'm ready to go to war, you know, go to war to get better and hop back on truck nine and ride out again. You know, as far as me, uh, first, I'd like to back up just a little bit. And uh, to Frank and to Freddie. So, like they said, I live out in Arizona, and my wife got notified. Um, I initially called her from the trauma room, and then I handed my phone off to one of the younger firemen, and he kind of filled her in. And shortly thereafter, she hopped in the car and started driving. Well, she got to me at about 3:30 in the morning, and um, the union was phenomenal. They got uh, a hotel room for her um, and then it turned out that my mom and one of my kids lived further south in uh, San Diego area. They got a hotel room for them and uh, they wound up getting us two hotel rooms for my family just for as long as we needed. Fortunately, I didn't have to stay in the hospital too long. My injuries, I wound up with uh, second degree burns um, to my ears, both sides, uh, both hands um, on the palms and on the back of my hands, but uh, the palms were deep second degree burns. They're uh, still pretty feisty. Um, two good side burns on the like, right, uh, you know, high back into the deltoid and then down the one on my left tricep. Um, basically kind of anywhere that the breather didn't cover. Um, got two burns on my flanks and then uh, one little two inch by two inch spot on my left butt cheek. So um, fortunately they were all second degree. Um, so I was able to, once discharged on Monday, uh, I was able to head home and, and seek follow-up care at the Maricopa Burn Center down in Phoenix, um, which has been awesome. And the union helped set that up too. Uh, as far as our recovery goes, um, my big concern, and I've heard this from a lot of the guys, because I've been trying to keep in touch with them and keep their spirits up and stuff like that. Um, my concern is is with the mental health side, because 
our, our, our wounds will heal. Our bodies are designed for that. But the mental health wounds can last a long time. And if we treat them improperly, um, that fire could wind up doing a lot more damage between alcoholism or drug addiction or suicide or, you know, just uncontrolled PTSD. So I've been really encouraging not only the, the 12 of us that were hurt, but also the other guys that were outside, those guys that had to sit there and watch a fireball in their minds consume their crew um, and couldn't do anything about it. Uh, we as firefighters, we don't sit by and watch things happen. We are doers. And to have an event like that where there's really nothing you can do, you're just going to kind of, you know, they thought we were all dead, pretty much everybody inside. And the despair that you could hear in their voices on the radio and, and just talking to the guys afterwards and them telling me about their reactions. Um, so my concern extends to, you know, the broader group of guys who are there. And my goal is to encourage all these guys. I've already started counseling because I already started having nightmares and sleepless nights and flashbacks and like ian was saying you're just sitting there and something stupid triggers you next thing you know you're quiet for four hours and your wife thinks you're pissed at her but you're not you're just back at that fire and i know that that stuff doesn't just get better on its own so i've been encouraging guys and trying to lead by example um i've been going to a emdr counselor that's local to me um, and then i also started another program that um a friend of mine recommended that helps uh, first responders uh, deal with PTSD type stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that we can't run from these things and uh, these mental wounds, if we, if we don't treat them, they'll be there when, you know, years from now when we are ready to treat them, but we'll have lost a lot between now and then. That is some powerful stuff. Uh, I, I want to come back to Freddie and real quick and Freddie, Freddie laid it out in the simplest of terms in, in, in regards to how everybody can help. And it's called whatever it takes. And so I know uh, local 112 uh, at UFLAC there, you guys have set up a fund to, to help the members during this time. Do you want to give out that web address? And uh, if anybody wants to make a donation, what can they do to help? Well, it's been crazy humbling of the support we continue to get, not only at a state level, but through the 10th District or Brother Frank Lima internationally. Uh, we're very humble from the support and the generosity. And uh, together with the UFLAC, we started a foundation as well. And it's www.uflac.org backslash charitable. And the money is going to go to our our injured firefighters and their families. And we're moving forward from this and whatever they need, it, it, it really is whatever the needs are gonna be for the members because when uh, life goes on, when COVID-19 is, uh, is moves, moves forward to the next phase, the uh, safe LA or the riding that's going across the country right now uh, moves away these members are going to be dealing with a lot of injuries as they move forward. And as Scott has said eloquently, so we're there for them and whatever their families need, because it is going to be a long road to recovery and they're going to have to deal with this 
for the rest of their lives. And folks that want to donate, just that website, once again, is www.uflac.org backslash charitable, correct? Yes, sir. Well, Ian, Scott, uh, we appreciate you being here today. We're with you through the whole process. And uh, so I just uh, want to wrap up in closing. I want to go around the horn one more time to everybody, to uh, Frank and Freddie, to Ian and to Scott, and to uh, just get your get one last take from you as we close out the show. You know, first, I just want to thank everyone, really. I mean, everyone at Fire Station 9, the LAFD family, the union, the uh, medical staff at County USC and at Grossman fire departments all over the world who has, you know, sent us, you know, support or just a message I've seen on, you know, social media, it it goes unnoticed or it goes noticed, doesn't go unnoticed, I should say. But a big thing I kind of want to lay on the table here is uh, if you think you're going to get lucky, you know, not wearing a, a, a certain piece of equipment that is meant to protect you, you better think again. All right. And I can't say I've always been picture perfect with it. This incident has completely changed how I operate or how I will operate. Um, but those things are meant, you know, to save a life. And, and that day, all that PP, you know, all the, all those PPEs are BAs, us being on air, us all wearing the right equipment. You know, it, it, it saved lives a hundred percent. Nothing goes wrong until it's, it goes wrong. Right. And another thing I want to emphasize is, you know, you have to train. You have to train every day. Doesn't matter. It could be a half hour, an hour. You have to train. We're, we're the busiest fire station, okay, in the whole nation. And we train every single day. And, you know, I'm proud of my guys that day because they did everything right. We just had a bad day at the office. But, you know, I think, you know, if we didn't have that discipline to train every day, something the outcome could have been a lot different and i thank you guys for giving us the time to speak here absolutely i just piggybacking on what ian said um the proper wear of our equipment the training you know a lot of it becomes reflexive um when the heat hits and you just drop to the floor staying low knowing your way out following your hose line stuff like that like that comes through training where it becomes reflex, where you're not having to think about it. You're just able to do it. You're able to execute. And really for me, trusting your instincts. I mean, I've been told by multiple chief officers who have called me and um, that had we not started our EVAC when we did, that we probably would have had um, quite a few funerals. Um, And that just, that feeling of if something doesn't feel right, then it's okay to back up and reassess. It's okay to, you know, come out and take another look, uh, especially when it's something like, you know, a smoke shop uh, or, or something where there's no life hazard involved. Um, there's no reason to send anybody home in a body bag over property. And then last but not least, uh, you know, we didn't have a chance to go because of previous ordinances. We didn't have a chance to go and look in this building and see what his storage was like because of the type of shop that it was. I've been told that that's going to change, but um, get out and, and know your first in, look around, see what your hazards are. Because uh, had we known that this guy had illegal levels of storage of 
flammable gases, flammable liquids, all kinds of crazy stuff in there. I guarantee you we would not have committed to an interior attack, even with those seemingly light conditions upon entry, because it's again, not worth uh, one of our guys for, for, you know, a smoke shop. So uh, thank you guys. Thank the union. Uh, like Ian was saying, County USC for the, the help. And for me, Maricopa Burn Center, the IAFF has been awesome for us. Yeah, I'm just blown away by the support we've gotten, and it's been humbling. So thank you. All right, guys. Um, echo what both Ian and, and Scott have said, and I want to add a, a few things here. This is a career incident, and it's a historical incident that's going to be, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the record books. Um, they're going to hold somebody accountable for it. I know i uh, got to give a shout-out to President Rice at the CPF. He immediately called me with uh, 10th District IFF, Frank Lima, to make sure as we move forward to change le legislation and to make sure this doesn't happen again, not only in the state of California, but anywhere in the United States. And to end, I want to make it very clear that um, the tactics and operation of Fire Station 9 were to a T of what the LAFD trains us to do. And the members on the podcast today saved lives. Their actions, their experience, and their ability to recognize are the reasons why we're able to have this podcast. So thank you, Ian. Thank you, Scott. And thanks for all of Nines for the uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. And we're going to be here as we move forward in the recovery for you guys individually and your families. And thank you, the IFF, for the time. And here's Frankie Lima. Yeah, in closing, I just want to thank, uh, thank Mark and Doug, the IAFF. And I really want to thank Ian and Scott for coming on, telling your story after such a uh, tough, tough, horrific fire. On one hand, so much to learn. On the other hand, you got to count how lucky we are. I'm glad we're not setting up for five line of duty funerals. Being hooked on air, like these uh, gentlemen said, that saved the lives. I want to thank my president, of Local 112, Freddie Escobar, my dear friend. We've worked together for many years. When I was the president of Local 112, he was uh, a vice president and board member. So we go way back. And um, the IEFF, a lot of people don't understand what the union does. And a lot of times we are that insurance policy, but but when something happens, you know, those $14 a month you pay in dues every month to the IFF, I don't call them dues. I call them an investment. We provide assistance. We fight for members. We provide services. I mean, we are loyal to a T. Walk in the halls to fight for legislation for our members. I mean, just recently, when you talk about loyalty and you look at Ground Zero 2001, we had 343 FDNY brothers and sisters perish. You know, now 19 years later, we're approving scholarships 
for those kids where their fathers passed away. That's loyal. That's what this IAFF is. And our goal is to take care of families and those left behind. So thank you very much. Our Team 10th is IAFF Strong and Fire Station 9, the busiest in the nation, Skid Row. God bless the LAFD and Fire Station 9. And uh, just one more time as we close out here, I'll toss it off to Doug to close. Uh, everybody, anybody wants to donate to help out, it's www.uflac, that's U-F-L-A-C dot org slash charitable. Mark, I think this may be our most powerful podcast so far. Um, not only are there lessons to be learned on the fire ground, but it, it really shows what this IAFF is about. Um, you know, guys, thank you all for being here and sharing your stories. I know it's not always easy, but I think this is a podcast that I hope every IAFF member has a chance to listen to, to really drive home why it all matters to their safety and to their families at the end of the day. So thanks guys. Best of luck on your recoveries. Um, you know, and, and like DVP Lima said, the IFF was, is going to be there for you continually for everything you need. Um, Mark, if there's anything else you want to add? Just, uh, I just want to thank everybody, uh, from Frank and Freddie and everything you did, uh, and to Ian and Scott for, for coming on today and telling your story. Uh, we have your backs. Uh, we might not talk again for a couple of weeks. We might not talk ever. But uh, we will have your backs from here on out. And all you ever need to do is reach out. We got you. So that ends, you know, this podcast. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. Um, hopefully you found this as impactful as we did. Uh, make sure you like. Make sure, especially, that you share this podcast. And remember, you can subscribe to make sure that you get all of our podcasts coming up wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe.